What's up, everyone? This is Lee Moskowitz, your host of Lee 2B, the sassiest podcast for B2B. We have such an exciting episode today. I am so excited because Brianna Doe is here. You know Brianna probably. If you don't, you, you should. But Brianna is a marketing expert and undisputed LinkedIn celebrity, as well as an entrepreneur extraordinaire with three entrepreneurial ventures under her belt and a stellar career as a senior marketing leader. Brianna doesn't just break glass ceilings, she turns it into revenue. Join us for a lively chat as we unravel the secrets behind Brianna's dynamic career, her journey to becoming a LinkedIn sensation, and the magic she's bringing to companies with her new agency, Verbatim, on this episode of Lee to Be. Hey, Brianna. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thank you for being here. Again, I am calling you an undisputed LinkedIn celebrity because... Like you are, you're, you're, you're the definition of a LinkedIn celebrity. If there is one to me. Thank you. I would dispute it, but I, I, well, appreciate I know you would. That's why I had to say, I, I'm going to make sure it's undisputed. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So welcome. This is going to be the easiest podcast you've ever been on. Cause it all goes downhill from here. I say, <laughs> but yeah, I'd love to start before we get into the, the good stuff. I saw your post recently where you said your content has been viewed 50 million times this year. Yes. Yeah. 50 million times, which is a wild number. Um, I don't really keep track of stuff like that until I go into Shield and look, track it for my media kit for brand partnership. So I was blown away. That is crazy. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Second is, so this isn't an over overnight thing. This is something you've been working on. You're, you're one of the most consistent LinkedIn content creators out there. I would love to hear, though, how did it all start out? How did you start out in, in posting on LinkedIn? Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. Um, so I've been writing for as long as I can remember. I've always had journals, written stories. I studied screenwriting in college because I figured that's it was the most natural transition for me. Ended up going into marketing. And I, I'm going to give you the longest winded answer. But when I first graduated from college, I didn't have a mentor. I didn't even know what a mentor was. <laughs> Um, and so I was figuring a lot of it out on my own and winging it. And I made a lot of mistakes. I did a lot of things right. Um, there were a lot of ups and downs and I appreciate all of them. But I took all of those career experiences and I got on LinkedIn every time I needed a new job. Then I'd hop right back off as we all did. And the first thing I started thinking about after a few years was I started seeing people creating content on there, like talking about their jobs and what they're learning or their families. And I'd never considered LinkedIn like a social media platform. It was just a job tool, like a job seeking tool. So over time, I just started wondering, like, did I have anything to say? I'd spent so much time building my career and learning the ins and outs of corporate America and marketing. Like, did I want to contribute to the conversation? My first answer was no, because I don't like public speaking, public writing, whatever you want to call it. But that thought just like kept coming to me. And so in March, 2022, I decided to try it. Like, I'll just post once and do an intro post and see how it feels. It was terrifying. It went viral, which I did not enjoy. And then I almost didn't go back. I told my partner, I told my sister that it was one and done, didn't want to do it again. But it was like I'd open Pandora's box. So I tried it again. Are your first post went viral? My first post, it was, yeah. What was your <laughs> post? It was just an intro post. I had maybe 500 connections. I thought like my mom would see it. 
And it was just an introduction post. Like, this is what I do. This is what I want to talk about. Was there a selfie in it? There, well, it wasn't a selfie. It was a very okay. classy picture of me in like the white sands of New Mexico. But there was okay. a picture of me. So after that, I just kept going for it. And I just treated it like a professional journal, which is exactly what I do now. Um, didn't expect people to see any of it or resonate with any of it, but it's been cool to see people follow along. Yeah, well, that that's amazing. Um, again, first post going viral. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it's not just that too, because y- you have to be consistent about it. Like so many yeah. people will post, well, I shouldn't say so many, but like many people have had viral posts and then like it's not like they get a gigantic following or people start engagement it's like it's like a one and done type of thing how did you keep it up what what do you say for that that's a really good point um i only ever had one goal and i would say it's still my goal now it's shifted a bit since i've ventured into entrepreneurship my goal at the end of the day is to basically help the person the brianna who's four or five, 10 years earlier in their career and give them like, the stories of what I did well, what I did wrong, um, and arm them with knowledge that I didn't have so that they can navigate their career with more ease. And keeping that as my goal, like not worrying about followers, which I know sounds counterintuitive, not worrying about how many impressions a post got, like it, it's what centers me and it helps me just focus on making sure that I'm creating content that resonates with me and like with who I'm trying to connect with. Yeah. One of, one of the things that I've seen you do a lot is you you comment on other people's posts, even if they're not fellow people with tons of follower accounts, you comment back to the people on your posts. So I I think that, I mean, everyone says you have to engage with others, but I think that's also a really big difference. And like, it's key. It's like, again, like you're not just doing it to the person who has a hundred thousand followers, but it could be the person with 500 or a thousand. Like it doesn't matter. Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned that because that's one thing I feel like you hear a lot, especially on LinkedIn. If you want to grow, you got to engage with, go to your favorite big creators and be one of the first 10 people to comment on their post every morning. Just like keep going. And Okay, whatever, that's fine. But I would say I like the social aspect of LinkedIn a lot more than I like posting and creating content. I will just, I'll spend more time just scrolling and commenting on people's posts and getting to know them than anything else because it's fun. And if you take Mm -hmm. the pressure off of it and just focus on getting to know people and don't take yourself so seriously, like, yes, it's LinkedIn, but also who cares? It's social media. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, I, I you've seen my posts. I take LinkedIn not seriously. I, I mean, I should posts. probably take it a bit more serious than I than I no. do. So, so that's LinkedIn, uh, amazing. But I do want to get into verbatim, and I want to talk yes, about that early baby. on because it's it's so exciting. Uh, I'm not even going to intro anything. Just just dive in. Tell us about verbatim. Verbatim is my new baby. We launched in October of 2023 this year. And it's a marketing agency that I launched with my really good friend slash security blanket slash business partner, Alexis Scott. And we're focused on working specifically with mission-driven brands and entrepreneurs through growth marketing, whatever that's really broad. So whatever that looks like for the company, content marketing, um, LinkedIn influencer marketing, and then all things LinkedIn. So if there are executives that want help building a personal brand on LinkedIn or a company that wants help with their corporate content, we can come in and help with all of that. And when we launched, you know, we met with a lot of 
like agency owners and marketers just to get advice, like what they wish they'd known. And we kept hearing niche down, focus on B2B tech and B2B SaaS. That's where the money is, like focus on B2B. And we did, like we launched and we got two weeks in and realized focusing specifically on B2B wasn't where our heart was. It was not industry specific. It was more focused on the impact that the company was looking to make or the entrepreneur was looking to make. So we're open to B2B, like we're open to B2C. And it's been so fun and so liberating since we just kind of, you know, took that pressure off ourselves. I, I'm also a big believer. Other people disagree. Like, come on. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rant a bit. But like, you'll see a, a job posting and it's like, we need somebody who has 15 years experience specifically marketing to yeah. software company for the circus industry. Like something crazy <laughs> specific. And it's like, first of all, if you find that person, great for you. But like also... One, why? Two, it's like, do you really, like, what is the advantage of having someone who's only worked in that that one thing and has only done those same tactics? That's not what marketing is. Exactly. Uh, so I, I'm not a believer that it's like, you have to be B2B, you have to be B2C. I think there are the nuances, but it, uh, being a, a good marketer is about understanding that. Exactly. And understanding that the playbook so to speak, is going to change. Even if you stay within the same industry, you need to stay agile. You need to stay creative and flexible. I think B2B marketers can learn so much from B2C marketers and vice versa. Like there's, they both require unique levels of creativity. And that's one thing I've really liked about my career. I call myself industry agnostic. I have floated from just industry to industry because I just love a challenge. And like, I love learning a new industry and diving in. And when it is time for us to hire, that's something that I want to keep in mind. Like, we aren't going to look for people with specific industry experience necessarily because people bring unique perspectives and that's what's important. Tell us a bit more about how you made this decision to to go all in on your own because it's it's very exciting but there's that risk to it as well so was it like an aha moment was it a gradual push to go out on your own what what was the journey there it was yeah it's definitely terrifying i don't think i slept for like two weeks but it's it was a mix of both i definitely had my aha moment um, actually back in March of 2022, the same day that I did my first post, I started a new job and was really excited about it, but also <sighs> like just kind of over it. Like I wasn't sure if I wanted to work for somebody else anymore. I'd always kind of been an entrepreneur, started my own businesses. I always had side hustles. I was never just focused on a full-time, like my full-time nine to five. And I kept thinking, like, is this what I want? But I just shut it down. No, like, this is where the stability is, especially in this economy. I'm not trying to rock the boat. I just keep your head down and, you know, work. But when I switched jobs this year, that feeling, like, would not go away. I was also realizing that I was really unhappy. I really didn't like my job. I really didn't like how I felt at work. And so I actually hired a career coach. Um, and during our first call, I said, I, I want to figure out, beginning of the call, I was like, I want to figure out where my gaps are, like where my blind spots are professionally. Like, how can I be a stronger employee? Why am I not happy? Like, at, after a certain point, the trend is me, right? Um, by the end of that first call, after all the questions she asked, she was like, well, okay, so we have one of two options. First of all, it doesn't sound like you want to... <laughs> stay in this job. It doesn't sound like you want 
a standard nine to five. So one of two options, we can move forward with what you originally hired me for, like figuring out how to be that stronger employee and manage up and yada, yada. Or we can start mapping out your corporate exit. I think I thought about it for three and a half seconds. And I was like, it's the second one. Like, I want to map it out. So it was an aha that I kept shoving off. And I figured I'd do it like when I was a VP. And I'm like 40, I'll, then I'll quit. And then I'll go out yeah. on my own. But uh-huh. this wasn't meant to be. Because that's what the path is. But so I, I'm curious if, if, well, if you're willing to talk, but how did you <laughs> find the the coach or the right coach for you? Um, I've had a few coaches on. They are great, but it's the same thing with, with sales where like, the bad sales tactics have made yeah. like, like have made it spam even for the like you know the good salespeople. So there's yeah. a lot of annoying coaches out there, or like the spam. How did you find the right one? Yeah, that's a good point. There are a lot of annoying ones, and a lot that are good at spitting a story, but maybe don't have the social proof to back it up. So, coach that I found, her name is April Little. If you work with her, you can tell her I sent you. If you're listening to this, but her name is April Little, and I actually found her on LinkedIn. So we connected like summer 2022 i had no intention of hiring a coach at that point um but i loved her content i loved what she stood for she's a black woman and so i felt really seen in her content too and we would talk in the dms and just have like silly conversations so when i really started thinking about a career coach she was the first and only person who came to mind like i already knew i could trust her i knew she'd understand like the nuances of being a black woman in tech and what i was coming up against um it was it was like a no-brainer. But I also knew because she was, she's really good with her content. Like it's a mix of helping you and showing you that you're seen, but also she's really strong social proof. Like her clients, like me, will rave about her all day. And that was really important to me. Cool. What what would you say are some things if people are considering coaching that that they should look out for in identifying the right one for themselves? That's a good question. One, social proof. Um, so with the caveat that coaches when they're starting out might not have it. Right. Mm -hmm. But I personally, especially if it's a really large investment, I prefer to work with somebody who has the testimonials, who has the reviews, who doesn't have a problem, like giving you stories of their clients. if They can't give names, anything that shows that they have worked with other people within your industry or age group or career level, whatever the case may be. Um, That's first and foremost what I would look for. I would also be really clear on how much you can invest. You can find a coach at really any range. Um, And I wouldn't even say that like the ones who don't charge a lot aren't worth the money because it's not so much that you get what you pay for. It's just, you know, you have to temper your expectations, right? But yeah. them choosing to be more affordable also doesn't mean that it's an automatic no. So understand what you're willing to invest and realize that you have to invest. Like if you want a good coach, it's going to cost you, but it's going to be worth it. And I would also say to look for look for people that you can trust. Like to me, a coach is like a therapist, not where I come to them with all of those problems that I want to talk about, but I need to be able to trust my therapist. I need to be able to trust my coach. You need to be able to open up to them and tell them everything that you want to talk about. And so it's really important to find somebody that you have that rapport with. If they are open to having like a discovery call and just chatting, that's a huge green flag. If they just want you to pay up front, then hop on a call, 
bye. I'm not doing it. So that's something I would definitely look out for. So I had Autumn Wade on, an amazing coach yeah. recently, and she she made very similar points to you. Uh, like she was, well, one, I asked her specifically about like, hey, like the difference between therapy and coaching, and she explained mm-hmm. that really well. But two, she was also like, every every decent, every good coach she knows will, will speak to you for free. Uh, yeah. or, or not for or consultation in some capacity, because they also want to make sure they are the right fit for you. Right. Yes. That's different and from therapy too. <laughs> it is different from therapy because they'll just, hey, you got to pay to play, right? But I will also say that's the copay. Yeah. And also, if they ask really good questions on like the intake form, that's a good sign too. Because you want a coach who's who understands who they want to work with. You want them to have that clarity too, so that you're getting somebody who understands you. I love coaching. I think. Yeah. I think good coaches are hard to find, but worth the investment. And so you you do some coaching yourself, right? Ish. I, I do. Yeah, I don't advertise it because um, I have like an hour a week <laughs> that I can do it. <laughs> but if somebody asks and it's like a good fit, I'm open to considering it. I do more mentorship than anything else, mainly for like uh, juniors and seniors from my alma mater. But I do coach occasionally. Ooh, so tell me, tell me the difference between, and obviously there's the formality, uh, there's, you know, logistics payment, but what is a coach versus a mentor in your opinion? Ooh, that's a really good question. I would say the difference is, so a mentor typically, it's going to be a longer term relationship. Coaches, you'll find that you're maybe paying for like a bundle of sessions or like one a month or whatever the case may be, you're paying for a set amount of times that you'll meet with them or work with them. With a mentor, it's really until, unless it's through a program, it's really until one of them kind of parts ways, whether the mentee Mm -hmm. has moved on to another level and they need a new mentor or the mentor can't, you know, handle the bandwidth, whatever the case may be. So it's more open-ended in that sense. And it's more open in terms of what you can discuss with a coach, you're typically going to be focused on one of two things. Like with April, I was specifically going to talk about managing up effectively, understanding my like professional blind spots and gaps, and becoming a stronger employee. With mentorship, like specifically the ones that say that I mentor now, it's broader. It's helping them figure out what I want to do with my life, which is very open-ended. Um, I studied this one topic for four years. Do I want to pursue this after college? How am I going to find an internship? What will post-grad life look for me? It's it's a lot more just meeting your mentee where they're at at any given point. Um, and there is there should not be a financial investment. Yeah. Yeah. I think. I feel like, well, I shouldn't say this, but I feel like so much of the answers of the questions you were saying is kind of like, don't worry about it. Um <laughs> Like, just like, and I know it's hard to do it when you're in the moment. It's not the most helpful thing. But I feel like, like, when when you're now here, you're like, oh, like, why was I so worried about that? Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you'll figure it out. Okay, so then you kind of hinted on it. But how do you balance your your roles as a, a mentor, a public speaker, now agency owner? Um, we'll, we'll get into your job boards, but you have your job boards as well. Like, I don't know what else side hustles you have going on. I'm a film um, festival ha- judge. Ooh, we'll get into that too. Um, cause my boyfriend's a cinematographer. So lots, lots I can talk about there. Okay. We gotta but, talk about that. Yeah. But so how do you balance all of that? Um, my life was really chaotic like four years ago and I 
thrive in for somebody who identifies as a creative i'm also really structured and rigid in my structure i like routine i like standard um, routines every day and so when i reached this point of just complete chaos like i was double booking myself with things i was constantly stressed something needs to change. And so I'm sure a lot of people have heard of this. I hadn't heard of time blocking or time boxing. Um, and it changed my life. So about three years ago, I started looking at my calendar on first a weekly basis, understanding what I had to get done, how much time I needed to do it. And then I would color code and block out my days. So I will spend, let's say, two hours mentoring on Monday morning. So it needs to fit in that two hour block or it needs to be pushed to my Thursday afternoon block. Um, this is what I will spend. This is how much time I'll spend on email. This is how much time I'll spend on the job board. And at first it was tough, like adhering to those kind of standards, but honestly, giving myself those guidelines has given me more freedom to actually say yes to more opportunities. Cause I have a really clear understanding of my bandwidth. Um, I have more going on than I ever have, but I also feel like I have more free time than I ever have because I just work faster and within the blocks that I've set. It's incredible. I sleep so much now. It, well, it also sounds to me you've you've unlocked your secret to managing your energy. Yes. In a way that is is works for you, but is also super fucking productive. Yeah. And, well, actually, as you say that, it reminds me, too. I also learned to say no. Like, I used to feel bad saying no to people if they wanted me to do something. And so then I was giving this energy to, like, opportunities and initiatives that I really didn't want to participate in. And I was exhausted. And then when it came time to do the things that I actually wanted to do, I had no energy. And there's so much freedom in saying no. I say no to a lot of things now and not to be rude or mean, but because that allows me to say yes to things I want to do. And that's, I think it's amazing. Well, thank you for saying yes to this podcast. You could have said no. Oh my gosh. I would have never <laughs> said no. <laughs> okay. So I know I'm all over the place. Just, I mean, that's I how it. I roll. That's how I roll here. But I want to talk more about verbatim. There, the first thing we see when we go to your website, you're not just another agency. You are a marketing team. Now, there are a lot of agencies out there. There, There's a lot of, I mean, I come from several agencies. I've built teams there. Everyone kind of has their own process, their own things like that. But there's tons of limitations. Not not all agencies are equal. And there's there's just a lot of dangers and frustrations with, with companies who've been burned by agencies. How would you say your approach as as a marketing team, not just another agency, is a bit different? Yeah, that messaging on our site is really important to me and to Alexis, too, because in my past, I've typically worked for really small teams or been a solo marketer. And when we did work with agencies, more often than not, felt just like a number, like they just checked us off like a box and got the work done. And it was Sometimes it was low quality or just didn't feel like they'd taken the time to understand our industry or our specific ICP or our needs, whatever the case may be. Um, and then when I worked at an agency, I also felt like a number, <laughs> like even to like my mm -hmm. leadership team. And I, it left a bad taste in my mouth about agencies. I am one of those marketers that's been burned by them through companies that I've worked with. And so deciding to start my own was actually an interesting realization and what i want to do through verbatim what alexis wants to do too is redefine what an agency is i know other agencies have said that it's kind of cliche but 
we don't want to just be an agency. Like we're an agency because we work together and we're going to hire and build a team that can work across multiple verticals. But the goal by working with mission-driven brands is to come in and actually make an impact. And you don't have to see us as just a consulting firm that helps you when we have time to. We will be an extension of your department, or you can just see us as your marketers. Um, And the distinction is what's really important to me specifically, because I want, as the agency, I want to come alongside and watch the brand grow and help them grow. And as a brand, I know firsthand how important it is to know that the agency that you're working with like values your baby, like your company is your baby and they value yeah. the work you're doing. So this is this is a, a little exercise quiz for anyone listening who is employing an agency for their team. I want to ask you, do you when you're talking about your agency, do you refer to them as your agency or your marketing team? or your PR team, or, or whatever. Because there, there is, and I, it sounds like semantics, and, and honestly, it could be sometimes, but literally my most successful clients from my agency career would be like, I'm CCing Lee from my marketing team, or I'm CCing our PR team on this. They wouldn't be like, our agency is blah, blah, blah. So also on the flip side, when I've worked with agencies, when I felt like they're my partner, that's when things work out. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now that I think about it, like when I would CC the agency, I would never, I would typically never say like, here's my marketing team. I'm CC my PR person. It was always just like, here's a third party agency that we work with. They'll take over from here. And like bridging that gap. I, I agree. Like sometimes it can be semantics, but once you kind of transcend that and you think of the agency as your in-house team, you know, they're doing something right. They're doing they're, a they're- lot of things right. Yeah, there, there's, there's. Have you heard this joke where it's like, I'm not a regular client, I'm a cool client. Cause like I've been <laughs> yeah. from an agency before, and the reason people make fun of that is because I don't want to say we can be more difficult. We just, if you've been in an agency, you know the going ons, and you know what yeah. bullshit looks like when, yeah, when you're in an, an agency and when agencies aren't working. Yeah. yeah, it's really obvious once you've worked in an agency, and that's another thing too. Like we want to be as honest as your in-house marketing team would be. I think there's this stigma, there is the stigma around agencies and either focusing on vanity metrics or kind of just bullshitting you. Like not really like the retainer well said a... this, so this is what we're doing. Yeah, yeah exactly. we got leads for you. Exactly. Go, go work on like, them. Yeah. None of them are qualified, but you got your leads. So mm-hmm. here's our bill. See you next month. Like that's, if the brand isn't growing, then we're failing. So. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so again, not not the hate on the agencies, but like it's important oh. things. So also, so I came in uh, startup. Uh, there, uh, there were a few agencies. I was horrified by the the work one agency was doing because we were paying ten k for a few blog posts that were like clearly AI written. Um, S, like 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 we were rewriting them. They were supposed to get us backlinks. Um, another agency, though, was was doing some HubSpotty work for us, 
and like i looked up what they were doing and i'm like literally i i can do all this myself like okay yeah but what they did those people they adapted to my needs they worked with me because they were like we literally want to be your partner so maybe i need to make them doing hubspot emails maybe i needed them doing some design work or helping me with some more like the boring tactical stuff so they adapted became a great partner for us the other one, I, I terminated, and then they threatened me. <laughs> but that's a different what? story. What? Yeah, they were like, I hope you're, I hope you're, like, this doesn't, I don't know. It, like, they were doing terrible work, and then they had the, like, because I terminated early with them. And then they, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's really bold. And I will say, too, mm-hmm. I, I love agencies that pivot or are flexible when your needs mm-hmm. change. I think that, I think that speaks volumes. The last agency I worked with through my last role was incredible like the best seo agency i've ever worked with i won't name them because we also do seo so right 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 a little plug but mm-hmm. they were great like he the my contact with the agency was always flexible really encouraging answered any question anytime and he felt more like a marketing partner i didn't feel like a solo right. marketer as much that's crucial. right so like get the agencies but get the right ones and get the right you'll one. know Give them a chance, though, too. Like, don't use your, if you've been burned before by an agency, don't, don't set your agency up up to fail, because it's like, you're wasting your money if you do that, and no one's happy. That's a good point. Yeah. Give them a, give them a chance, like a fair chance. Okay, well, we are going to move into Spill the Tea with Lee. This is the segment where we spill the tea on all things B2B. That's right. This is the sassiest podcast for B2B, and it's going to get juicy. All right. So we talked a bit about LinkedIn. What is your favorite thing about being a LinkedIn content creator? And then you guessed it. What is your least favorite thing about being a a content creator? And take your time or answer in whichever one you think of first. Okay. So my favorite part by far are the people that I get to meet even you, like, especially you, I, how would we have met otherwise, you know, like, (laughs) choosing to engage on LinkedIn, which is not a platform that I ever thought I would publish a single post on, has opened up a lot of doors when it comes to just friendships that I've built. I've met some of my best friends through LinkedIn, I met my business partner through LinkedIn. It's, it's incredible. It sounds so cheesy, but it changed the trajectory of my life through the people that I've met. So I love it for that. My least favorite part, okay, it's a toss-up. So on one hand, it's people who, okay, actually, it's, it's going to be a lot of things. So my least favorite parts of LinkedIn are people who use engagement pods. It's not that serious. Just post your content like the rest of us. Why are you paying for fake engagement? It's Honestly, I think it's embarrassing. So people that use engagement pods, people that are really negative just all the time for no reason. Not even with like a takeaway at the end of the post. Like I can't even learn anything. I just, I'm just depressed after I read it. I, <laughs> I unfollow people for that. Mm-hmm. And people who rely on like cheap gimmicks to go viral. I think there's this pressure on like going viral. You got to go viral. I don't think it's good or bad to go viral. I just think having a really clear goal for LinkedIn and why you want to create content and who you want to connect with is more important So I don't like any of that. However, all of that pales in comparison to the people whose content centers around complaining on people who post things like that. It drives me insane. I just, like, if I'm unfollowing the people who post the content I don't like, 
I also don't want to spend the rest of my time unfollowing people who talk about the content that they don't like. Like, just post the content you like and then unfollow people that you don't like. It drives me insane. <laughs> yeah. But I can't post about it because then I'll be the person posting exactly. the content I don't like. Mm-hmm. This is mm-hmm. what plagues me at night, Lee. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, mo- shifting to <laughs> a bit more verbatim because I can't be that. Uh, so, one of your main things you're saying is is you want to work with, or actually not saying, but one of the things you're doing is you're you're championing mission driven brands. Mm-hmm. So, one, what is a mission driven brand to you? And then, two, do you believe there is a line between authenticity and performative when it comes to mission driven? And this actually kind of falls on what we were just talking about with LinkedIn, with the performative stuff. Perfect segue. Um, So for me, a mission-driven brand or entrepreneur, it means that they want to have like a tangible impact on either their local community, the society around them, or the world around them. And I keep it that broad because like, I'm honestly not particular on the impact they want to have. So I volunteer for nonprofits, one that's um, that fights sex trafficking, one that employs people impacted by homelessness. Like the mission, not that it doesn't matter, but what really matters is that they have one. I wanting to make money is great. Look, like I want to make money, we all want to make money, but knowing that they're driven by something else is what allows me to be the most creative and to feel the most the most like freedom to build really inclusive marketing programs. And I felt that way about my full-time jobs too. I always, mm-hmm. whenever I didn't work for a company that had a strong people-driven mission, I struggled to feel connected to my work and it just never really panned out. I ended up being really unhappy. And so that for good reason, for obvious reasons, like carried into the agency that we're building. But you bring up a good point. Like sometimes it's a thin line, sometimes it's a really big line between authenticity and being performative. And I struggle to put like tangible criteria behind it. I'm curious what you think, but I feel like you can tell, like you might not be able to tell on the first call or in the first post, but when it's not backed up by action or actual knowledge or expertise. So if you're just talking about it, but you're not trying to learn more about the issue that you talk about or you're not amplifying the voices of people actually impacted by it. It's just centering your own perspective. That to me is really performative. Yeah. What do you think? So I think there's, there, I mean, I have so many thoughts, but I, I think there, yeah. there's a few few things I think of when I hear that. Like, so DEI, DIB, one of the most obvious ones. Every yeah. company has it in their, their job posting, job listing. Then you go into the hiring committee and everyone looks <laughs> like they're Jack Smith from the Midwest. Um, yep. You know, maybe there, there's a woman in there too, just, you know, so we can say, we have, but again, okay. you gotta um, sprinkle it in, you know, there's that. Then, like, I have a really, I have a bone to pick with startups where, like, yeah, we're really big advocates for DEI, but like, we're a startup, so like, we can't do stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, or, like, yes, like, our main business is just surviving as a startup. Okay. So, one, you don't have to be Google to do anything DEI. You don't have to be Google to hire diverse people. If you're saying you can't find them, you're not looking hard enough, or your network is too white or too male or too whatever. Um, So that's one of my thoughts there. Uh, There's tons of things you can do from acknowledging the special holidays to making sure your health insurance plans cover 
everything that you need there to having different coaching plans for people in different groups who might not have the same bring. So there's tons of things people can do. So that's one of my things with performative. The other on the flip side is just because it is a mission driven brand. And I think this is where a lot of more entry or younger people fall in is just because it's a mission driven doesn't mean that you can't be making money and you shouldn't be making money. There's, where we're it's kind of like hollywood where it's like people want to be actors so they're going to tolerate lower pay and stuff or people want to work this is just a fun fact i know like zoos don't pay a lot of money to their interns and college students because they know it's a dream to work with animals <laughs> so it's a, it's like that with a lot of mission driven where people are like oh I, I really like this cause so i'm gonna get paid less Nonprofits have tons of money and even if they don't yes it's mission driven but if it's your main job you you should be getting paid according to your your stuff okay so 1000 percent, no notes back to your first point yeah if it's not backed up by some sort of action the startup argument drives me mm-hmm. banana like it doesn't make any sense to me because if you're not willing to put actual action money or effort behind your apparent core value of DEI or DEIB, then it's not a core value and it's not a priority. So you either need to be more self-aware or stop trying to just hide it behind a lack of money or lack of resources. If you want to hire diverse people in your network doesn't have those, one, expand your network, and two, look outside your network. It's not hard to find diverse people for talent. Like You just have to actually put the effort in. It has to actually be a priority. And I love your point about mission-driven brands and making money. Yeah, exactly. You do not need to sacrifice a livable wage or success, however you define that, just because you have a strong mission because you want to make an impact. It's totally okay to value both. I mean, I'd be lying if I said that's not how I operate. I'm running an agency, like, and it's not for free. (laughs) So it's important to remember, like, it doesn't, mean you're selling out at all one other post i mean i i follow your post obviously but one of the ones i noted to bring up here was about the hiring process and um you were talking about a job that had like eight interviews i'm interviewing now everything is like like six calls on assignment and then sorry like it was a tough decision we loved you but whatever yeah um how long do you think an interview process should be so I think it depends on the level of the role. Um, if it's like an executive level role I underst- for a larger corporation, I understand having more interviews and whatever else. It's a very big decision. If it is an entry level or mid-career role, I see no reason why there should be more than three interviews. Four, if somebody is sick during one of the interviews and can't make it and you really want them to meet the person. But if you cannot make a decision within three interviews, then you're not asking the right, as a hiring manager, you're not asking the right questions. So you need to go back to your interview process and what you're trying to learn about the candidates before you start hiring again. It's just, I just think there needs to be a respect for both parties' time. And in this market, we all know how tough the market is. I do think there are companies that are taking advantage of that with assignments and with drawn out interview processes because they know people are looking for jobs. The market's going to shift and people are going to remember how they were treated. 
Mm-hmm. I will just say I did not even the interview process that I mentioned in the post, but another one did like six interviews. They were about to do my reference checks. They didn't do them and they just ghosted. It was three years ago. No, four years ago. I still remember it. And the CEO just reached out to like try and connect and network. And I'm thinking about it, but it's really important to remember what it's taught me is that it's a really small world, especially in marketing, but in any field. And so if you treat people with respect, you value their time and you prioritize their experience with your company when they're interviewing, even if you don't hire them, people don't have to leave with a bad taste in their mouths. Anything more than four interviews, just to reiterate, crazy. And four to me is even a little much. Yeah. I mean, even even for like director or VP, like I get that yeah. you, you, you know, six could be the right number. Maybe we really did need to have everybody. But like, at what point are you just looking for a reason not to hire somebody? Yeah. Um, <laughs> like, like. Well, and also I'm just the moment you get into more interviews like that, which you're right, there might be a reason for it. If you can't tell me what the main takeaways from each interview should be, what your objective is with each one probably can remove that interview like if you're not learning anything new about the candidate in the third or in the fifth interview you should only have four if you're just repeating the same questions in the sixth you should only have five right that's my big pet peeve it's like i'm on my sixth call i'm like oh so like what questions do you have for me and i'm like bro i asked all my questions already (laughs) i'm not just trying to say that like i know your gtm process (laughs) i know your tech stack um, I know your favorite food. Like, I don't have more questions. Just hire me. I'll learn the stuff later. There's nothing else to talk about. I have no more questions. So I feel you. I would love to hear a Eureka moment in your your marketing career. It could be a a really fun campaign you loved. It could mm-hmm. be a, ooh, I really love focusing my time doing this type of stuff. Just any, the first thing that comes up when I say a Eureka moment for you. So after I graduated from college and I started working marketing full time, I, I studied film, like I said, so I didn't have like a marketing internship or anything like that. I had no idea what I wanted to specialize in. And I landed on graphic design. I was like, I want to be a graphic designer. My goal is to be a creative director and all these, I was going to be like the next Don Draper or whatever. It was a whole thing. Maybe like a year and a half, two years into this graphic design season that I was in, I realized I it was just not for me. I was not designed to be a graphic designer. I was miserable. I was burnt out. And I remember I was working on like some sales collateral and I'd sat down with some of the sales reps and essentially teach them about the products. And I was walking them through the main benefits. They would say something about our ICP and I would say, well, no, the way they actually think about it is this. Um, these are the pain points that we're highlighting here. And that was my it came to mind the moment you asked, like, I realized just how much I love the intersection of like product marketing and growth marketing and content. Like I love, absolutely love like putting myself in our buyer's shoes, like really putting them in our shoes and building out like content that will actually resonate, building out campaigns that will actually resonate and nothing to do with design for me. Um, I love branding i love graphic design i have so much respect for them but for people that do it but it was such a wonderful moment for me like understanding what actually fires me up was really really cool 
Yeah, I kind of similar. I was like, oh, I want to, you know, I think a lot of marketing students are like, yeah, I want to be Don Draper or Peggy um, and do commercials. And then it's like, oh, well, like there's certain agencies that own that. They're super competitive. But then like for for me, I I got an interest. I mean, I did a few internships. One was a bit more sales oriented. One was um, at Zwilling doing like product marketing stuff. And then one was digital marketing. And to me, that's like where it clicked. And then obviously you go even further. But then I'd say I had, you know, I feel like your your career is full of different eureka moments because then it's the career. Oh, it's like, I don't want to just do Google ads all day or email marketing all day. I want to do all of it. And that's, oh, that's called growth marketing or that's called demand generation and then so on and so forth. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or like figuring out what kind of businesses and brands I wanted to work with, like understanding why I felt so burnt out with certain companies was because, like I said earlier, I needed to work with companies that had a strong mission and were actually focused on reaching those goals. Like it was a huge eye opener for me. Well, Brianna, I I can talk to you all day, ask you questions all day. Before before I go to wrap, I always like to give our guests the little shout out moment. We've talked about Vermatum. We've talked about LinkedIn. Uh, Let's put your website again in here. And yeah, where can people follow you? Obviously, LinkedIn. How can people contact you? Are you speaking anywhere coming up? Yes, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm really nowhere else. I have an Instagram and I post once a year, so it's not worth following. Um, relaunching my newsletter soon. It's called This Could Have Been an Email. So if you want to follow that, I'm going to post about that in the next couple of weeks. And as for speaking engagements, I've wrapped up for this year. I finally, I landed a big one, which I was really excited about. I was like, that's it for 2023. So anybody listening to this who would like a speaker with great hair, contact me or Lee. Amazing. Thank you so, so much for, for being here. I am so excited to just continue watching what you do, what other new side hustles come out. Uh, we got the job board. Maybe it'll be a cheese board. I don't know. <laughs> well, there, there's got to be so many things. I'm so excited to keep following you. Thank you so much for coming on. And thank you, everybody, for listening. I'll see you for another episode of Lee to be next time. Enjoying Lee to be? Please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews go a long way in supporting me. Thank you so much.